Welcome to the Jimmy Neville Podcast. Today's guest is Rob Lohman. Rob is an addiction recovery expert, interventionist, speaker, and podcast host with over 18 years of experience helping individuals and families overcome addiction. He's passionate about sharing his knowledge and personal experience to inspire hope and healing in others. In his podcast, Rob invites guests to share their own stories and expertise to help listeners find their own path to recovery. This was a really interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. Let's get right into it. recording welcome to the podcast Rob hey glad to be here thanks for having me on appreciate it yeah so just a few questions here I want to go through and the first one is what inspired you to become a public or wrong wrong question (laughs) you are not a public speaking (laughs) expert Um, but yeah so what event led to you uh, getting clean and and finding recovery Uh, it was it was quite a journey as as you know a little bit as well right Uh, but yeah the journey itself was just one of like the gas tank was running empty and I just started, you know, it was, it was not fun anymore, put it that way. And for me, like right up to the the moment where I found the rooms of recovery, I was doing a lot with suicide ideation and I didn't know what that term was back then. I just knew that I would have these moments where I would kind of be driving down the highway and I'd see my car veer off the highway and explode, right, and hit a median. And I'm like, see my seeing myself dead on the side of the road. And I thought, that's kind of odd. That's not normal. But who am I going to tell, Jimmy, right? Who am I going to tell that to? They're going to think I'm crazy, right? So I kept that my own little secret for a while. And, um, and eventually it just led to me one night wanting to take my own life. And they, they always say the danger with suicideation is you don't really want to hurt yourself, but when it ruminates in your brain over and over again, over time or things that are happening, it can eventually just become your reality accidentally. And uh, the night that I found sobriety, Jimmy, I was hanging out in a bar in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I went out eight nights a week, drank and drove eight nights a week. You know, it was just like, that's what we did all the time. And I was hanging out in the bar and it was music and girls and dancing. And all of a sudden the whole bar got dead silent. And I audibly hear the words, you're done. And then the bar got really loud again. And it was that moment of mystery, kind of like, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that happened to. And and I was. And I said to my buddy, Sean O'Brien, I was like, hey, bud, I got to go home. I think I'm finally done drinking. He's like, all right, whatever. We'll see you in the bar tomorrow night. But for me, I felt like something shifted. You know, for a guy that was full of anxiety and, and I was you know just desperate and lonely but had a lot of friends, there was that shift that happened to me right then. And I drove home that night, drunk but felt sober. And I get to my one-bedroom apartment, walked up 12 flights of stairs, 12 stairs. And next thing I knew, I'd put 350 pounds on my barbell, picked up that barbell, and dropped it across my chest. And in that moment of desperation, God intervened in the form of my dog, I say, because my dog came over as I had my elbows unhinged and that bar was dropping and just started nudging my knee with his head. And I looked at him like, who the heck's going to feed you tomorrow? And what I believe happened is God like literally stopped time. He grabbed that barbell 
And I believe, at least in my faith, God carries the weight of the world. And so he put that barbell back on the rack. And I woke up that, that next morning feeling peaceful, <laughs> scared, but peaceful, reached out for help. And next thing I knew, my aunt had taken me to an AA meeting and I found the rooms of recovery and never looked back. And that was, I, but I didn't go through detox or withdrawal or anything. It was literally like I never touched a drop of alcohol my entire life. Wow. So you, that was it. You vividly remember dropping this barbell, but it never actually hit you in the chest. It, it, stayed on it's almost like it was just stuck here and like it's it's like god stopped time in my apartment really and just gave time for him to now i I grew up a christian so i believed in god and believed in faith and but but that was like a surreal moment where i feel like he just kind of used my dog to save my life and just saying how much he cared about me to not let me die that evening and and yeah it was it was incredible and it was and what i do now like as an addiction interventionist and help people you know get into recovery and go to detox and go through all the hoops. Right. But for me, it was just, it was just gone. And that was 21 years ago. Wow. That is an incredible story. Something you said stuck out to me about how, how much suicide ideation you had. And I've always kind of thought of just substance abuse in general is a form of suicide. You know, you, you're so dissatisfied with reality that you're putting these substances in your body. I mean, and, and putting yourself in a state where you're not even really present in your life. Like that by itself is like, in my opinion, like a form of, of suicide in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, it's self-loathing. It's, you know, the, the, when you, when you look at substance abuse or other types of abuse, right, there's other ways people abuse themselves with sex or porn or shopping or gambling or gaming or whatever, but there's this emptiness that we're trying to fill somehow. And a lot of it, boils down to just feeling unworthy of being loved by others and by God and our friends. So we abuse ourselves. And, and, that, and that's one of the things I, like I talked to a lot of people about. And hey, before I forget, I wanted to also tell you that like, if your listeners want to go to uh, freerecoverybook.com, they can download some resources there. Um, just something to give to your listeners for tuning in today. And, you know, but it's, it's like this, my wife, one of my wife's old counselors used to say, okay, yeah. And just letting people, you know, know when they're listening to that they can, you know, I want to be able to give people some, some meat they can put behind a recovery journey if they want to start one. Um, It's hard to find tools and resources. And back then, 21 years ago, AA was like the only thing around really. Um, And it was sort of taboo to be in recovery, but now it's kind of like normalized in some ways. Yeah, it's, it is. It, I, I was actually talking to a friend about this recently. It's like a lot of the stigma is gone because so many people know somebody that is struggling with addiction. I mean, especially, you know, how prevalent like the opiate um, epidemic is nowadays. Like it seems like everybody knows somebody that, that has struggled. So it there is a lot less of a stigma. Yeah, and that's like when people ask me and they'll say, because, you know, when you meet somebody, right, and people are always like, well, Jimmy, what do you do? That's one of their first questions that comes out of their mouth. It's it's the awkward question of, well, what do you do for a living? And like, why do you, you just met me. Why do you really care? But right. I never really answer that question when people ask me. I'll, 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 answer, I'll ask the question back and say, well, before I answer that question of what do I do, have you ever had a loved one or yourself that struggle with addiction ever? Like, and they go on like, oh, yeah, my Uncle Billy or I did. And they go on this long story. I go, yeah, well, that's that's what I do. I help people 
break that cycle in their family and get on a, get on a path of healing and to live like a really fulfilled life. Yeah. It reminds me of, I often get asked, uh, cause I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, but I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. And people say, what brought you to Knoxville? And I, you know, I don't want to be like, well, I was in jail for six months and then I moved here to come to rehab to stop using drugs. You know, I feel like that's not a, a great way to start off a, a conversation, <laughs> but um... <laughs> it's a connection point for sure. You know, I had a crazy, crazy experience. I won't get into it, but at the Knoxville airport, um, the hotel right next to Knoxville airport, I was doing a, a transport for a guy that had some mental illnesses and it was a, it was just a really, we had a wild experience there in Knoxville. And uh, it was just, it's tough when you get into the mental illness world and like diagnose mental illnesses and schizophrenia and bipolar and stuff. But the, the thing about like drugs and mental illness is so many people see someone on drugs and alcohol and they're like, oh, this guy is schizophrenic. This guy is bipolar. This guy is drugs mimic mental illness. So if you can get the drugs out of people right, and get them on the right road of recovery, then you can really figure out, do, do people really have mental illness or is it just a mental health struggle? And if you can get the alcohol and drugs out, then you can really get to the bottom of what's really going on with somebody, what's at the base of the iceberg, I always say, that's driving these addictions. And if we figure that stuff out, man, then we can really help people and get them on the right road. Yeah, for, for sure. What did recovery look like for you early on? I know it changes a lot over time for a lot uh, of people, but early on, what did it look like? Yeah, it was bl- Yeah, it was blissful. I mean, you think about where I was the night before, right? In the first recovery meeting I went to, Jimmy, I, w- I went to the, my aunt took me to a meeting. She's passed on now. She had 24 years of sobriety at the time, but she, we, we parked on the curb in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we walked to the back of a bar to my first AA meeting with a bunch of people in recovery and they were smiling, they were laughing, they were happy. They talked about God. And I was like, you know what? I want this. And because I didn't go through detox and have like a body shock, like God just removed it from me, you know, and I could drink two bottles of scotch in a day, right? Just from sales, marketing, entertainment, but it was just gone. And so I had clear mind and my body felt good. So I stepped in, I'm like, oh, I want some of that. So Started, I mean, I did anything that my sponsor at the time recommended I do. Because, see, I didn't know recovery at all. But he did. You know, he had helped a lot of people go this road of recovery. And I thought, you know what, I want this. And so I just started going to have coffee with people. After, like, I'd go to, you know, meetings. They say go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I'm not all about a lot of that now. You know, I feel like there's a lot of rules and parameters, do this or you'll die or do this or you'll relapse or do this. That's like fear-based recovery. I'm more about focusing on the future of recovery, not holding on to the past of our addiction, right? Um, But, you know, that worked for me in the beginning. And I was just like, hey, I I want this. I wasn't fearful of drinking again. I wanted to know how to live a healthy life, right? So I, I joined the softball leagues, man. I went to, did, I went to, all these like sober uh, camping trips. And I just plugged into sober people all over the place. And it was a lot of fun. Like I loved it. We'd go on camping trips together. We'd go to like national conventions together and just go on road trips. And so early recovery for me was exciting. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I loved it, man. It was, it was really cool. That's, 
That's awesome. I, it reminds me of, of something that I've thought about a lot is, you know, in recovery, how important it is to create a life that you enjoy living. Because if you don't create a life that you enjoy living, like what's going to keep you from going back to the substance? And that looks different for a lot of people, but it sounds like you were able to figure that out pretty early on, which is, which is really cool. I know a lot of people struggle to, to, you know, do that. Yeah. And I'm really big on encouraging people now with what I do with, you know, doing a lot of recovery coaching and interventions is encouraging people to focus on coaching, counseling, and community. It's kind of like the three legs of the stool. If you don't have one of those that's solid or all three of those are solid, you're going to teeter-totter and, and stumble, right? But if you have a strong community, you can enjoy the present, what we're doing right now, right? But if you have a good counselor, you can understand how you got here. And you have a good coach, you can figure out where you're going to go. And so I'm really big on that. And, and what I've found is that clients I work with, I know this isn't like a what do you do for a living job, right, interview, but it's like you know, clients I work with that really don't follow really simple suggestions Man, they relapse. They go back. They're struggling. They're fighting it every single day. And I'm just like, why? You know, and and a lot of it goes back to this feeling of unworthiness. But when you are around people that understand you, you can process things a lot different and a lot better. Because your old drinking buddies aren't probably going to be the best support for your recovery. Right? Your church family that has never had an addiction, like your church people that have never had an addiction you know, they can't really understand the struggle to an extent of like the substance dependency, right? But when you can get around a bunch of people that get it, have been there and don't want to go there again, oh, it's, it's, it really is a lot of fun. And then, and, you know, then life started getting, you know, things changed in my life later. And like you said, your recovery changes and whether that's good or bad. Um, and there were a lot of struggles I had in recovery that, you know, led to a lot more struggles in recovery, but I never... I never picked up a substance, you know, um, but I did maintain and continued on with a gambling addiction. And that's a whole nother animal in recovery when you're dealing with gambling versus substances. So the gambling happened after you got sober. No, the gambling started. So I started drinking at 14 and gambling started at 15 and that really continued through my recovery into my marriage that I have now, um, into a mental breakdown I had in recovery. You know, there's all sorts of little nuggets in here that ended up landing me to go to prison for a little while in recovery without substances. Wow. But I just didn't square away a lot of this up here, the head junk and the beliefs in myself and get really proper things in place. Because what happened was early recovery when you were single was easy. You know, you go to meetings, you go to camping trips, you had responsible for yourself and your dog. <laughs> you know, that was it. And and it was simple, right? And and later on, um, in recovery, you know, I ended up meeting my wife, Jen, in 2006. We got married in 2006, had a kid in 2007, and, you know, then started a, you know, entrepreneurship venture, um, my own business in 2000. Um, eight and then nine and my daughter was born in 2010 and it was just I stopped going to meetings I stopped going to church retreats I stopped plugging into bible studies and men's groups and really isolated myself because what I thought I had strong faith in recovery 
I, I really had shallow faith and uh, developed what I call a scarcity mentality and a fear-based mentality where I really, in early recovery, I thought I was pretty rock solid. Yeah, when you were talking about, you know, having the community and people around that you could talk to about your struggles, an example I've, I've talked about is, my, you know, my mom was never in addiction or anything like that. And I, you know, early on, if I were to call my mom one day and say, hey, mom, I'm having a tough day and I want to, I'm, I'm thinking about using today, you know, she would be like, what in the world? You know, like, we need to get you somewhere, you know, like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. But if I were to call somebody, you know, in my recovery network and say that to them, they'd be like, oh, you know, that's normal. <laughs> you know, here's how we work through that. And, um, you know, just that empathy, like that, that ability to understand, like, there's, there's something very powerful about that. Yeah, and moms mean well, right? I oh mean, yeah, they're for great. Sure. <laughs> yeah, my 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 mom and dad are awesome. And I remember one summer in early recovery, I was up at our lake house in Michigan, and I got invited to to share my story because you're kind of like you know the visitor, right? To share my story at a, an AA meeting, my mom wanted to come because um, there's a lot of addiction in our family on both sides, my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family, and so she wanted to come hear my story. And I told her, I said, Mom. Just so you know, I'm not going to change my story or sugarcoat it just because you're there. She goes, okay, I, I still want to come. So she came, and I told my story. And afterwards, she's like, I, I, I don't think I really wanted to know all that. <laughs> yeah. And I said, yeah, that's, that's more real of the struggle I went through. Because on the outside, I presented myself well. I mean, I was physically fit. You know, I had a bunch of girlfriends. You know, it was just kind of... I'm talking like in my addiction, not like, you know, in recovery. Um, but I just presented this false person to everybody. But inside, I was this empty shell, and I was, you know, feeling rotten about things I was doing. And, and that's what addiction does. It eats away at us from the inside, right? Um, and recovery helps heal us from the inside to where the outside projection can match what's going on inside in a healthy way. Yeah, so how would you say you find your true self or true identity? Oh man, I love that question. I, I do a lot of speaking on I hope identity and purpose. And that's one of the things I love to talk about from stage and, and uh, like men's conferences or just wherever is that each one of us is on our own little journey to figure out really who we are. And, and it's hard to, it's hard to get there. I think a lot of times it's just kind of well, is this who I really am or is this who I think I am? And how do we really know the difference? How do we really know who we are? And a lot of that stems from, like, what's our foundation in our life? Like, I don't, I'm not sure what your foundation is. Mine is my faith and being a Christian. And I had to really dive into what does it mean to be a Christian man? And so once I dove into what that means and then who God says I am, then that's what I really try to live out of. And if I'm projecting and reflecting what that really is, then I know I'm in alignment with my faith and my values and everything as well. Cause so for me, it's, it's my, my identity is in who God says I am. And that's for me, I find that by reading the Bible and spending time with godly men and just really diving into that. And I know when I'm out of alignment with that, because I'm not acting like, you know, someone that would be in that kind of like foundational piece. And I, and I call it, there's a, this might give a good visual for some people. And again, no matter what your faith is, just roll with me on this one. Okay. So the Bible talks about that 
you know, a vine is connected to the roots, right? So the roots are going to grow vines, which grow branches, and branches grow fruit. So at the end of the branch is this fruit, right? A, a good, healthy thing that you can eat that's good for you. But a, 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 an unhealthy vine is going to produce absolutely no fruit. So an unhealthy vine could be like addiction, right? Our roots are in addiction, so what we're bearing in our life is ugly. It's not tasting good. It's just bad for us. But if we, for me, if I tap it into the Bible and my faith, and I, and I try to live that way, then I'm bearing better fruit in my life, and you know people are going to be attracted to that and want to know more and, uh, and want to know, hey, what happened to you? How did you change your life? Because it's, it's hard when you see people are like 30 years in recovery and they're like, well, if I don't go to a meeting tomorrow, I just know I'm going to drink. And they've been saying that for 30 years. you know. Or they say, my name's so-and-so and I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic 10, 20, 30 years later, 10 years later. And my question is, now I'm not knocking the program at all. Hear me say that. It's very valuable. It's 100% great. In that regards, but if our identity is still in being an addict one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, ten, twenty years later, then have we really found freedom? Right? Because I'm still identifying as an addict from way back then. But I'm not anymore because I'm freed from my addictions. I'm a new man, I'm a new creation, I'm someone in recovery, and I've recovered from my addiction. But if I don't continue to do the things that are good for me, right? Like staying in community, going forward in my life, not manipulating and lying and doing all the bad behaviors, then I'm going to go forward and become more of a positive person in my life. So I feel like it, the identity piece for me, like I don't identify myself as an alcoholic anymore or an addict or a gambler. I just don't because um, I'm not, I don't do that anymore. Right, I'm freed from that, and so I am. I identify myself as a child of God, and that's my identity, and everything else comes out of that. Yeah, I've had now some... I don't do things perfectly in my life at all. I do not do things perfectly at all. I am human. I fall short every day, but that's not my identity. My identity is not my circumstances. It is in who God says I am. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I've had some some very long conversations with some friends about this and I still do identify as an addict and it's more of a sense like obviously I'm not addicted to drugs anymore but it's more of like just reminding myself that I do have very obsessive compulsive tendencies and that if if left unchecked um, they they can become a problem but I understand your side of it as well and some of the people that i you know, have worked with and, you know, respect very much. So in recovery, hold the same opinion that you do. So, <laughs> so. I've lost, I've, I've lost friends or colleagues over it. Cause they're like, dude, I said, <laughs> yeah. look, I'm not, I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong by any means, but if the core, if you really, if the core of you just believes that that's really who you are, it's like identifying yourself as I'm also a changed man. I'm also a man in recovery. I'm also you know, um, those other things as well. So yeah, again, it's, um, some people, I just think they, their new addiction becomes recovery and it, and it can be very unhealthy for some people where 
the fear now is if I don't do this, I'm going to do that instead of focusing on the recovery piece and the good, the good things that you can become. So you don't have to worry about ever drinking or drugging again. It's just gone. And there is freedom from that. Like that's what I coach people on and help people on. There's true, true, true freedom there too. So. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that 100%. So you talked about doing, uh, working with families, doing interventions. And my question to you is, what would you tell a mother whose child is struggling with addiction? I would tell a mother who's struggling with addiction to go purchase the addiction intervention book on Amazon. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, see, I, I wrote this book uh, last year, published a book on Amazon called The Addiction Intervention Book. And the reason I did that is so that mother you're talking about can literally go read the book and say, wow, there are a lot of ways I can help my loved one. But number one is whether my loved one gets help or not, I have to take care of myself. Right? Because there's so, and it's it's legitimate fear. Like if I don't do this, they will die. If I don't Mm -hmm. buy my son or daughter groceries, they're going to die because they're not going to eat. If I don't pay my son or daughter's rent, then they're going to be on the streets and they're going to die. If I don't pay their car insurance, if I don't like all these things that are totally logical, right? Things of it. But if I don't do this, they're going to hurt themselves. And we have this illusion of control that we can't actually control their life if we do this kind of stuff. But you think about the 30, 40, 50 year old, right? of a mother that's still concerned, but this has been going on for 30 years, right? Of an addiction, which is hard. And it controls the family system so many times. You know, you go to Christmas and Uncle Billy's going to come and everyone knows Uncle Billy's going to be drunk. And it's going to happen at like nine o'clock, like every year. So everyone starts walking on eggshells, but they keep letting Uncle Billy come to the Christmas party. And every year they're shocked because he's doing the same thing again. When is enough going to be enough to where you really have to have the conversation and say, look, we care about ourselves enough. We're, we're, we're not, we can't tolerate that behavior anymore. And we're going to love you in your addiction. I mean, in your recovery, Uncle Billy, but we just can't support you in your addiction anymore. So if you want to come to the Christmas party this year, we're going to ask you to come sober. And we're going to ask you to go. And if you can't come sober, then we're going to give you tools to get you some help. And if you don't want the help, then you're choosing your addiction over the family. And we just can't tolerate it anymore. And that's really hard for families to do. That's really hard for a mother to do for their son or daughter, no matter how old they are. You know, I mean, I have parents in their 70s and 80s calling me because their 50 or 60-year-old son or daughter is still, like, doing what they're doing with addictions. So something has to change. And the whole way I look at intervention, the process of what I do, is... We are trying to give people tools to bring the bottom up to the loved one and to the family. And we're going to present the best gift we can and say, look, we love you enough that here, take this gift to change your life. If you want it, we'll support you 100% all the way. But if you don't, we can't keep doing this. So we're going to have to draw some healthy boundaries today, right now, and here's what that looks like. And it's all in the way you present it. You present with love and, and just say, look, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I, I'm not sleeping. I'm unhealthy. My health is deteriorating because I'm so concerned about you. 
But now I, I've learned tools. To, I care enough about myself right now that I'm willing to do things differently. And now the choice is up to you. You got to choose. What do you want? And, and it's all in the way you present it to someone that makes it attractive to them where you give them a chance to really invest in their own future. And they can choose. I'm not talking like total abstinence at day one, although that is good, right? It could be a, a harm reduction thing. It could be moving them from one thing and getting rid of that drug. And, and, you know, so it's a process. It's not always just black and white. I'm not a guy that says, Get your butt out of here. We're never talking to you again. Like that doesn't work at all for anybody. So it, but again, that's really why I wrote the book was to give people these tools to say, here's a whole parameter about how you can help your family and your loved one. And it seems like by doing the intervention that way, what you're doing is helping the person want to change. And yes, I wonder what you think, like if a person doesn't want to change, can they be helped still? Yeah. Or how do you help? Not everyone gets help on day one. Yeah. Not everyone gets help on like day one. If we're just talking just about interventions right now, right? Not everyone wants the help on that day, but the healthy boundaries, the family implements will move that person to wanting help. Cause you know, I mean, you know, addiction, right? It's like there's pride involved. Like, well, you're not going to tell me what to do. Actually, man, today we didn't tell you at all what to do. We gave you choices, right? Well, you didn't give me a choice. You said go to recovery or this. Well, that's a choice, right? The choice is take this gift of love and offering to go get some help today, and we'll help you pay for it. We'll support you. We'll do all these things, right? Or you don't want the help at all. And then we try, well, sometimes we'll try to find, like, depending on how serious it is, we'll find that that mid-ground, like, you know, because I'm not, and I'm not saying over here on the left hand, go to treatment, go to rehab, go to 30 days, 90 days. I'm not saying that. I'm just figuring out what's the best plan to help their loved one go. Because you got, you know, highfalutin, you know, high-powered people that if they just unplug, their business could literally fall apart, Right. I don't want to jeopardize that, but there are other things we can do to help people in the process. So, and then there are some people that just say, you know what, screw you. I'm not doing anything. I'll never do anything. I'm going this route. And then the family has to really decide, are we going to chase him again for the next 10 years? Or are we just going to put healthy boundaries in place that their loved one's going to understand that they need to get the help. And I'll give you a great example. Um, one of the interventions I did was with a family and, you know, they really were not sure he was going to go get help at all. He had guns and I mean, it was all these things you got to like, if they have guns, you got to take that into consideration. Right. So we had to get him out of the house to this other place for an intervention. And, you know, he gets there and, you know, sometimes I'll have another colleague come with me if the person is violent. So, you know, kind of have like the person in the background, like who is that person, right? And this one intervention I had, you know, Todd sitting in the back and this guy I was intervening on, he goes, who's your buddy by the door? And he's like, is that your bouncer? Is he going to kick my bleep? You know, if I get up or something, I was like, well, honestly, hopefully we never have to find out what he's capable of because we're just here to literally have a conversation, right? And, And he listened with attitude, which happens, you know, 
occasionally, right? And uh, he was just sitting there with his arms crossed, was not taking any in, arguing. I said, hey, we're not here to argue, man. Like, that's why you're in this situation. We're here to literally, I just want you to listen to your family's heart, and then you can decide whatever you want to do. And he goes, you're not going to make me do anything today? I said, no. You're 100% in control here. Like, this is up to you to figure out what you want to do at the end of today. And and he 100% refused treatment, right? Just done, didn't want to go. But the family held their boundaries, which was, none of us are going to answer the telephone except for Rob. If you don't get help today, nobody's going to answer a text, a phone call, anything. Even if you threaten to hurt yourself, no one's going to answer anything except for Rob. So for two days, he was texting, calling everybody, and it was so hard for the family, right? But on day three, he called me, right? And we talked for a while. On day four, he called me. You know, And in the end, I just got to tell you, because you'll talk to some interventionists, they're like, everyone I help gets help. Well, this guy refused help, right? Completely refused help. Continued to go down the deep, you know, go down the roads of addiction, his wife held her boundaries. They ended up getting divorced. It was a sad deal, right? A real sad deal. So you never know which way they're going to go. To the other extreme where I did an intervention with a family and they were like, my mom's never going to go to treatment. I said, well, just trust the process. That's why you hired me. She, she, she's not even going to listen to us. I said, okay, well, let's just trust the process. That's why you hired me. And we show up to the intervention. Mom comes in and I just look at her. I could tell. And I just said, let me ask you one question before we get started. Aren't you just sick and tired of hiding and running and lying and manipulating? It's like, aren't you just sick and tired of this? And she looks at me square in the eye, Jimmy, and she goes, I'm so ready for this. Thank you. And she just started crying in her hands, weeping. She's like, where are we going? Hopped in the car, took her to treatment. She's never had a drink since then, changed her whole life around, invited me to her one-year birthday party. You know, family invited me down. I'm friends with the family. Like, those are the two extremes of what I deal with in interventions. Wow. Yeah, that is that is crazy. It's, it's good to hear the failure side as well because I'm, I'm sure yeah. that... Yeah, well, well, people don't want to talk about that. Yeah. People right, don't want right, to talk right. about the failure side because... I'm a professional and I want you to know I'm perfect and I'm really good at what I do. Like, I'm not in control of the outcome. Absolutely not. And when you're dealing with people in addiction, um, a lot of times that, I mean, it, it's just the, the reality of it is a lot of people don't want to change. You know, they haven't, ha for whatever reason, whether it's they haven't had enough negative consequences or what. But, I mean, I worked at a treatment center for three years and... You know, when I, it was very rare that I would get feedback that someone was doing well. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sad. I, I hate it. Like, I want everybody to get it. But there's only so much, you know, that, that I can do to help. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, people ask me, what's your success rate? I, I, I never quote success rates because there's so many factors. Like you just said, if somebody agrees to go to treatment, but they never open up about their past. They never open up about being raped as a kid. They never opened up about, you know, how hard a divorce was. They never open up about their gambling or, you know, their masturbation and pornography. They just, they hide so many things because of, I call it the shame boulder in front of your mouth. 
It's like when you have the shame boulder you can't understand right that right but you remove that shame boulder and just let it all out right but then you have the other extreme where they go to treatment and they throw it all up and they get it all out and they get healing but the family doesn't do any work while they're gone they don't plug into family therapy they don't plug into the family program they refuse to go to meetings or something because it's their loved one's fault mm-hmm. right and so then the loved one leaves treatment and goes back into a toxic environment, and then the family's shocked when they relapse. Yeah, it's it's wild how many parts are at play. It's a very it's a big picture. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah, hundred percent. So as far as so you gave an example of how to communicate during an intervention that's that's effective. What are some techniques that do not work well, that you've seen that do not work well? Oh, uh, well, for what, like in an intervention, you mean, like in the process? Yeah, or just like trying to help somebody want to, you know, want to change. Yeah, well, realizing that we, the expectations need to be set well, because if your expectations, like I remember in early recovery, my sponsor said, if your expectations are up here, and your acceptance level is way down here, they're so far apart that you're not going to be happy with any outcome. So unrealistic expectations that your loved one's going to change like that, right? Or someone in addiction that wants help, their life's going to just change and be great just like that. That's an unrealistic expectation, right? So we got to get our expectations in alignment with reality, number one. You know, it's, you know, six, you know, three months later in recovery. Well, why don't, why aren't I making a hundred thousand dollars and life's just grand and all my relationships are healed because whatever program or thing you step into, there are steps or a process to get you from point A to dreaming where you really want to go. And, um, when you expect so many things to fall into alignment, Right then all those people can actually disappoint you along the way. So then you get disappointed and then you relapse and you use that as an excuse to go back and get drunk again. Right. I was sitting out with a guy a couple days ago and and he'd been sober eight months, you know, and just was having a day where he just wanted to pick up a drink. He hadn't had a cigarette in five years, but he just, he was so frustrated with life. And he's like, so we went and bought cigarettes instead of picking up a bottle. Right. And then we had to talk through, well, so the next time you get frustrated and irritated, are you just going to go smoke? And he was like, well, no, I don't plan on getting addicted to cigarettes again. I go, yeah, but they're in your sock drawer. So that, so it's easy access. So you got to be careful with what we replace other addictions with, right? And all those things. So I think those are some danger zones. The false expectations are really dangerous for people in recovery and the family in recovery. Yeah, I like I like that answer. So, what do you think makes a good mentor? Mm. Well, empathy and compassion are two real important things. You know, um, the ability to to not just listen to people, but actually hear what they're saying. You know, because I I can I'm sorry, you can hear people, but are you actually listening? Right, because not every solution fits every person. And so I think a good mentor is, you know, really someone who's been through the struggle. They can identify with the pain and, and 
the, um, the struggles of addiction. And they're there to not just placate someone they're helping, like a mentee. Like, oh, that's okay, Jimmy. I understand. You really felt like, no, man, like what was going on 24 to 40 hours before that happened? Well, I don't want to talk about it. Well, let's get real. Like holding someone to the fire, but with empathy and compassion also. But you got to, here's the thing I look at is people with addictions have been told what to do probably most of their life. Like, Jimmy, you need to go do this. You need to do this, Rob. You need to go do that, Sarah. Kimberly, you need to do this. Mike, and it's like, hey, man, what would like, instead of like, because what I, in coaching, I don't give answers. I move people to solutions. And I'll ask questions like, well, okay, so tell me more. What does that behavior look like for you? All right. And then they they answer the question. I didn't say, well, you're acting like whatever. And uh, I love giving examples, right? Because I can tell you all stuff myself but I had a guy I was working with and he was sitting in a freezer at King Supers so his job was stocking the freezer and stuff you know and and his boss just gave him a reason to go get fired up and go use drugs again like he was he got under his skin and he was just he was turning it you know and and he calls me up he's like I'm, I'm gonna go out there I'm just gonna tell him what's up like okay well let's talk through that I go what will happen if you go tell him what's up. He goes, well, we'll probably start arguing, and then he'll fire me. I said, okay, so what happens if you get fired? Well, then I, my mom's going to not cut me off because she won't pay my car payment anymore. Okay, and if your mom cuts off your car payment, then how are you going to go find another job? Well, I can't. And it was just, I got him to a point where he realized, okay, I don't need to go yell at my boss right now. I said, what I want you to do, I want you 50 push-ups in the freezer. What? I go, just do 50 push-ups and then let me know if you want to go yell at your boss again. So you get them in a different mindset. Get them away from the moment of lack of clarity and then say, okay, I've now learned how to like choose my response. The seven habits of highly effective people talks about there's a, there's a stimulus and there's your response, right? There's a stimulus and an action. And if you can learn to get this space in between both of those called the freedom to choose your response, then you're more likely to respond to a situation instead of react. So if a mentor can help someone see those spaces of old behavior and what can you do to bring on a more positive behavior, I think that's a good mentor that walks alongside somebody in their life too. What you just said reminded me of a quote I saw somewhere. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. That you've said that behavior modification is not true transformation. So what what do you think true transformation is? When you can look backwards and you don't recognize the person in your addiction. I mean, you hear people share their stories a lot. And people look at the person and they're like, there's no way you're that same person. You know, people look at me and they're like, there's no way you went to prison in sobriety. And I tell them the story and go through that journey, right? And they're like, there's no way you're that guy. It's like, yeah, thank you very much. That's a great, that's transformation to me. Yeah, I see what you're saying. On the flip side of the mentor question, what do you think makes a good mentee? Somebody that's teachable, 
someone that realizes they don't know it all and they're really willing to look inside of themselves and accept positive like feedback and negative feedback. So, cause we put this wall up and it's like, well, I already knew that. It's like, well, did you really? Or are you just saying you already knew that because you didn't want to act like you didn't know that. So teachability and humility are two, I think huge things that make a good mentee. Yeah. And that lines up. I, I ask this question to a lot of people, um, but it lines a lot with some of the questions, uh, some of the answers I've received about, you know, the fixed first growth mindset that, you know, a, a good mentee has a growth mindset. They, they, they realize that by doing things, I can't get better, that I can change as opposed to like, I, I am just this way and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. And I've had to do that in my own business. You know, there's, as an entrepreneur, I feel like I know a lot and I'm very creative and that's, you know, gotten, put me in places of being stuck in my own growth before. So as a, as a coach, I have coaches I pay good money for that help me grow as an individual. And I have, you know, a bunch of mentors, right? That, you know, there's, they're not charging me. It's just, they're just loving me well, but sometimes I need to make that financial investment in where I'm going. And uh, I pay attention a lot more sometimes when I'm paying for, you know, wisdom than just getting it off the streets from people. And it, and it's really helped take me from where I got stuck in my own growth and business to like, you know, kind of going in a pretty good diagonal going, going up and going forward. Yeah. Something else I wanted to ask you about that I saw on your website is your interest in criminal restitution and where that comes from. Yes. So long story short, you know, I had a mental breakdown in recovery in 2012 and was in a bad place again, obviously. And, uh, deal a lot with suicide ideation again. And just, I gotten way off the rails. Gambling was out of control. So different addiction, but just, you know, same kind of mindset as before. And I ended up having a mental blackout one night, lit some boxes on fire on a covered patio, caused a lot of damage. So I'll just sum all that up that way. And there's obviously a lot more details in there, right? Um, but through that process, I came out a much stronger man. And I learned a lot about myself. Um, my wife learned a lot about, you know, me and herself. And we've continued to work through the struggles that that caused, right? Of going to prison for a little while. It was supposed to be, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, two years of work release to 56 years in prison for that incident. And uh, got sentenced to a 13-year prison sentence. And God got me out in 10 and a half months. And God just did so many miracles in that. But going into the system, your your brain's all fried, right? I, mean, I 100% trusted God with the outcome. But in that, I missed like a little detail that, hey, by the way, there's a big interest rate on your on your restitution for the damage that was done. And not knowing what that really meant till I got out, right? Um, and again, thank goodness it was 10 and a half months later, 11 months in a halfway house. And then in 2015, the state of Colorado started imposing or implementing, this was already a, a statute, but, or a law, but they started implementing a 12% interest rate on all criminal restitution in Colorado. So I looked at my financial number and I'm like, holy cow, that's like, that's a lot of interest every year based on what I owed. And I thought there has to be some change here. And I started researching. I started talking to going to get involved with prison fellowship and 
started meeting a bunch of, you know, state legislatures and, you know, House members and Senate members. And for three years, I just started sharing my story, the story of everyone else, too, that was dealing with it. And the state of Colorado was the third highest interest rate in the whole country at the time. Okay, so this was 2015, I realized this. And then in 2000, uh, 2020, I was able to speak and get a bill passed into law in Colorado, just based on just hammering doors for three years. And, and not neglecting the victim side, right? Because there was damage caused. And it's not to say, woe is me as the, as the guy that did it, but taking both sides into consideration. There has to be a, a medium here. And the other problem, Jimmy, was that while people were in jail or in prison, they were being charged interest on their restitution. Now tell me how that's fair, right? The guy comes out with felonies and he's trying to get his life on track. <clears throat> and now his $10,000 thing is twenty five, or in my case, it was a lot higher number than that. So we were able to get a bill passed into law January 1st, 2020, it started, and it reduced the interest rate from 12% to 8%, and it no longer char- is charging people interest while they're incarcerated in the state of Colorado. And for me, there is more work to be done there. So if anyone in Colorado is listening to this right now, and you're like, hey, I want to be a part of that. Next year, I'm going to start working on a couple other initiatives. Um, now that our masks are off and we can like go into a building freely and you can actually not hear me talk like this, but hear me talk like this, you know. And um, so that's some work I'm going to work on for next year to just get. Because um, for some people, it's a life sentence of paying restitution until you pay it off. But when you're dealing with Eight, some states are 19, 20% interest. And I'm just like, it doesn't make any sense. There's not, there's no reform there. It's just kind of, you got to keep paying this till you pay it off. But if you can't, because, you know, a lot of people are getting out of prison. Fortunately, I have a great network. I have a great education. Like getting back in the stream of things was, I figured out my own way. But some guys, they were making 20 grand selling crack and something on the street corner on a weekend they're trying to make an honest living at $15, $16, $18 an hour, and they just can't get caught up. So they commit crimes and go back to prison, and therefore recidivism rates are so high. So I'm trying to help bring sensible logic to that while making sure you know victims are being taken care of along the way as well. But at some point, there has to be a, you paid your dues to society, and you're done. Yeah, I guess the incentive for them to have such a high interest rate is they're just trying to motivate people to pay it off faster. Is that is that what you think it is? Oh yeah, when I, when I first got out, this is this is now this is a little comical. Okay, when I first got out, they wanted me to pay. Now this is a guy with two felonies on his record, and I tried to get so many like good jobs, and I got turned down by nine different companies just because I had a felony on my record. So I ended up just starting my own business, right? But the officer I was meeting with when I first got out and had to start paying, they wanted me to be paying like close to $4,000 a month towards my restitution. Which, yeah, and I I held my tongue, but I'm kind of like, you don't even make $4,000 a month to the person that I was talking to, right? So the logic just was not there. 
But at some point, I mean, I've been paying my restitution every month for eight years. Well, actually, I'm sorry. Uh, I was paying it while I was incarcerated as well. Um, so for 10 years, I've been paying my restitution. And at the rate I'm going, I'll be paying restitution until I die. Wow. So there has to be some kind of end. There has to be an end point somewhere. And I don't know what that is. I don't know what makes sense. I have some thoughts and ideas, you know, of if you look at the, the I think what the men, men die at like 74 now, that's kind of like the, the length of, what do they call it? The longevity of men and women is different ages, but it's like 74 or something. So, you know, kind of my thought is that if you commit your crime at 40 or 26 or whatever, and you pay your restitution for 10, 15 years or, or half of your lifespan or whatever, that you should be done and, and you did everything you could to make it happen. And uh, so anyway, in my opinion, there's a lot more work to do around the whole country with that. Because again, there are states, fortunately, we're only at 8% now. But for places that are in the teens, upper teens, I mean, that's just a big number, no matter how much your restitution is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That definitely seems like a worthy cause to fight for. Yeah. And it's a logical one. I mean, it's just a logical solution, but I don't know what this, I don't know what the right solution is, but I'm not done fighting for a better solution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am about finished with my questions for you. And I was just wondering if there's anything that we didn't cover that you want to, you want to mention. I, I just say sometimes, you know, like if, if you're wondering if you have an addiction, you probably do. And the good thing is there are tons of solutions out there to help you. And I don't know where you start or what you need with or whatever it is. There's free resources. There's luxury treatment centers. There's all sorts of stuff out there. So, uh, But if you do need resources, I just want to encourage you to go to freerecoverybook.com and you can download some resources there. And just start looking into them, explore them. Um, but you don't have to stay. Like your bottom in your life can be right now. If you take action today to go forward. If not, you can always go lower. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, I mean, liftedfromtherut.com is my main website. But um, I mean, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and just Rob Lohman, you know, L-O-H-M-A-N. Just go look me up. And um, yeah, it's, it's nice when you can look it up and it's all like, you know, kind of positive stuff instead of like your mugshot. But you'll still see my mugshot out there too. Um, but I've come a long way since then. I've gotten to know myself really, really well. And again, I'm not perfect at all. Um, but I, I continue to strive to bear, bear uh, tasteful fruit in my life. Yeah, and I'll throw all those. I'll I'll do the hunting and, and find all those links and put them in the show notes along with anything you you mentioned during right. the podcast as well. But yeah, I appreciate you so much for coming out today, Rob. I, I enjoyed our conversation, and I will talk to you later. Yeah, keep up the good work, man. Get them out there. You're doing great. Thanks. I'll see you. All right, bye.